Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with ESPN's MLB insider, Buster Olney. Uh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with ESPN's MLB reporter. He's featured on Sunday Night Baseball and every ESPN platform available. He's also a best-selling author. Ladies and gentlemen, Buster Olney. Buster, thanks for coming on the show. See, I'm kind of, I have kind of a quandary here. I'm not sure exactly how I should refer to you, because you've been texting me back and forth, and, and uh, you know, you mentioned a boonie, and I'm... Booney to me is your brother who I worked with on Sunday Night Baseball. <laughs> so yeah, that's all, I always that, thought of you, you know, when I interviewed you as a player, uh, you were Brett and your brother is Booney to me, but you're Booney. Aaron's Uncle Arn. Uncle Arn. <laughs> I still refer to dad as Booney because he's kind of the original Booney to me. Uh, but I don't know. It kind of whatever circles we're we're running in, you know. My group of friends are different than Aaron's group of friends, so I guess he's used to being Booney. I'm used to being Booney. I, I remember in 2001, I, I played with a, a great teammate of mine, Mark McLemore, who had actually played with my dad in Anaheim, and I was doing an interview one day, and and McLemore, you know, he's always kind of playing around and trying to get me to say something. There's probably 10 or 15 reporters around him, and I can see Mac lurking in the background. He pops his head in and he said, ladies and gentlemen, he said, that ain't Booney. That's the Boone. I played with Booney. That guy was my catcher in Anaheim. So in Seattle, that's what I became from that interview. Everybody said the Boone, the Boone. So I was the Boone for a few years. It was kind of a sticky thing for me. I just kind of ran with it because people liked it. But yeah, Booney, to my friends, I, I'm usually Booney, you know, but but I forget when I'm around my dad and, you know, we'll be in Philly and, and Luzinski will say Booney and I'll turn around. And I know he's always oh, talking to my dad or if I'm, you know, with Aaron, hey, Booney, hey, I'm Booney, too. So it's interesting, but, uh, you know, we, we make do. Yeah, today uh, you'll be Booney to me. All right. Uh, take me through a day of Buster Olney's life. It's got to be filled to the, to the brim. You got the podcast. You got to write a column. You might have a TV hit or two. You might have a couple radio hits. And you got to study and know your stuff. You know, every day, no matter what happens... Uh, you are milking the cows twice a day. And it's a lot like going through baseball season. There, you know, Every single day you're going out to the barn, growing up on a farm, and every single day covering baseball, you are write, writing about some game or talking about some game or you know, working through that. So you know, I usually get up about 4.30 in the morning and just uh, get my stuff prepped in the morning and then tape the – podcast by 7 a.m. or so, you know, maybe uh, we'll start that process at some point, you know, Sports Center. I might hear from them where they're like, uh, we want to do something on your home cam. Um, and then you bounce between those those entities in the morning between radio hits and the podcast and doing television. And then usually at 10 o'clock, you get a bit of a break. You know, you maybe you go for a run and then you come back and you're on the phone the rest of the day. Uh and then for me, you know, just working on Sunday Night Baseball the last 11 years, that's that's the primary focus that I have during the course of the week. But I always thought that, you know, 
<laughs> having having that nonstop. I mean, uh, when when I was on the dairy farm, we literally never went anywhere. We're the most boring family ever. We never went on vacations because you can't leave the cows. <laughs> it it, uh, it it it's it's unbelievable. I mean, you just go through that list. Now, I'm I'm just getting into this on this side of the ledger a little bit with this podcast. I'll tell you, this podcast is enough to drive me crazy. Just getting the guests booked and the times that work for, for all the people that behind the scenes that help me out with it. But you've got to be on, on a daily basis. I, I mean, Buster, I'll have a hit, you know, a couple times a week where a radio station will have me on and say, Hey, break this down. What do you think? And I'll do my studying for that. So I know it. So I come out, you know, I'm up to up to speed with what's going on in the current game, but but uh, but I guess you know to get to a point of Buster only in 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 the game of baseball, you got to do that. You've got to nonstop. You're always learning. You're always studying. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, it when things go really well, it's it's fulfilling. But it but it's a lot of time, a lot of effort, and uh, I don't know. I think that that's makes the good things worth it. The, the time and effort that you put in. Yeah. And look, I, I've, you know, always thought that, you know, what's required in this job is the same things required in, in the, you know, the job that you do where, um, you know, you, you have structure and you have a time where you got, you know, first bus and then you have the second bus and then you're at the ballpark and then you have the workout, uh, you know, at a certain time. Um, you know, I've, I've had friends who always laugh at me because I'll be like, okay, I'll meet you at two forty three. You know, it's not two thirty. It's not three o'clock. It's two forty three. And I'm like, well, hey, yeah, because you you literally, um, you know, have your day sort of broken up into those small minutes as we go into a Sunday night game, for example. Uh, typically, I'll go on baseball tonight before the start of Sunday night baseball. And those hits are have to be before the national anthem is played. And I have approximately one hundred and twenty seconds in which I better darn well be efficient <laughs> and and get off the field by the time they start the national anthem. Uh, and those those happen at 52. And then the next time I'm on camera is, uh, you know, after the top of the hour by four minutes, like 7.04. And that's 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 uh, that's kind of how my days go, uh, you know, structured moment to moment. You would not want to be my two kids. I can tell you that. No, and, and once that game starts, once you do your hits, now you've got all right. Now it's game time. I got to watch because I can't, there might be something that happens in the bottom of the third with two outs that took ten seconds. That's the, the whole story of the game, you know. For for me, they say, "Hey, we're going to cover the postseason, and we want you to break down this, this, that." Well, that's good. I, you know, I can put my eyes on a few games, just have generalizations put that down on my notepad and now I know where to go from there and I can kind of filibuster, but you've got to really, you know, you've got to really be in tune from start to finish. Like you said, before that national anthem through that game, especially in the postseason, especially in the world series where every game is so big, but uh, that's a, that's what you signed up for. You, you mentioned uh, being a player and, you know, I did that for so long, and that's all I ever was was a player. And I had my routine. It wasn't as broken down to the two thirty-seven, but I knew what I did. I got to the ballpark, and it was time to to go to the training room and do whatever I had to do that day for fifteen minutes. And I kind of wander out in the clubhouse, and now it's time for me to maybe eat. Now it's time to take off my sweatpants and get into my workout gear because I've got some early work. Yeah, we we're all regimented. Uh, 
it's all relative, you know, to what we're doing at the time, but you're right to, to be really good or to be great at anything. There has to be a structure. There has to be a timeline. I'm finding that post, uh, post career, it's just as important as it is in career. It's just in career was so long for me that it became second nature and easier. This side, it's a little bit more of learning and, and, uh, it's been a big learning process for me and an interesting one though. But, uh, it's yeah, that I, I think you summed it up perfect. All right, you grew up in Vermont. I want to hear about a young Buster only. Tell me about your childhood. I know you're a Dodger fan, uh, and I know Koufax is in there somewhere. You take it from there. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I, I'm the ugly stepchild of uh, our kids in my family. You know, my the rest of my uh, the rest of my siblings, I have uh, two. I have an older sister, and I have a younger brother and sister. My mom got divorced and then got remarried. Uh, and all my siblings don't like sports. And in fact, to this day, only one of the, uh, my three siblings and my stepfather, only one of them owns a television. <laughs> like, wow. No one has any interest in sports. But when I was eight years old, um, I began to play Little League, at, you know, not very well. But I played on the Dodgers, and so that kind of piqued my interest in the Dodgers a little bit. And at eight years old, I got a book on Sandy Koufax, uh, called The Baseball Life of Sandy Koufax, and that really fueled my interest. And then the next year, I started collecting baseball cards. And in the end, I'd wind up having like 30,000 cards. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the farm that I grew up on, the closest house is a mile and a half away. Com- we were completely isolated, no television. We would only get the newspaper once a week on Sundays. But I would learn baseball by listening to radio. And, and the team I listened to the most, of course, was the Red Sox growing up in Vermont. And so Ned Martin and Jim Woods were the announcers for the Red Sox. And I had this little silver transistor radio that I would take out to the barn when I was shoveling out the manure every, you know, every evening. Uh, and I listened to the, you know, the Red Sox of Jim Rice and Fred Lynn uh, and, uh, you know, Cooper and Yaz. You uh, threw those great years, 74, 75, 76, 77. And then when the Dodgers would come east, then the radio waves would bounce enough at night so that, you know, uh, when they were in Pittsburgh, I could hear KDKA or when they were in Philadelphia, WCAU, uh, you know, WOR out of New York when they would play the Mets. I could actually get a, a French station out of Montreal when they would play the Expos. And so, I, you know, any chance I got, I would listen to uh, the Dodgers when they would come east. And that's that's how I learned baseball. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $1 on either team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score... 
you score with promo code Boone this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my conversation with ESPN's own Buster Only. You know, we had Jim Palmer on the show recently, and and he had mentioned Koufax that 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 '66 World Series, and a young Jim Palmer was was uh, he was pitching against Koufax. Ended up being Koufax's last game. Of course, Jimmy Jimmy won the game. <laughs> he liked that part of the story, but it kind of took me back to my childhood a little bit, and and growing up. Uh, you know, early in my childhood, Grandpa Grandpa Ray was a big part of my life and very influential on the baseball side of thing. My dad was a young player, but I spent an awful lot of time with with Grandpa, and I think we I, I took it for granted as a kid because it was so normal to me. But Grandpa would have these stories about you know he played from forty seven to sixty. He'd had these train rides and, and these long, drawn-out stories, and there was always a, a Bob Feller or a, or a Ted Williams in there. And, you know, I think back to those days now, and what I'd give just to hear that story one more time, even at the time, it's like, Gramps, you've told me that 20 times. But for, for, for people like me in my generation, you know, we hear about the Koufaxes. We hear about the Ted Williams. We hear about the, the Fellers. But it's almost like a, a fairy tale. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like a movie. We see those old reels of Mickey Mantle hitting and at Willie Mays and think, oh, that's really cool. But did that really happen? And and then for you to tell me about the Kofa, I don't know. I just think it's kind of a cool thing that that as baseball uh, connoisseurs, like we both are in, in different ways, uh, that the history of the game, it's so important to me. It's so cool. It's It's kind of been the fabric of my life. And uh, I, I was just wondering if, if there's guys like that that seem like too distant. You've heard about them, you've studied them, but but you never got to see them play. I, and I got to say, it's interesting to hear you say that because, of course, you grew up with these guys, right? I mean, for me, you, you know, you as a ball player, uh, you know, or the ball players that I watched, if Steve Garvey was my favorite player when I was 10 years old, uh, you know, um, they were gods to the point that when I grew up, you know, on the farm, and again, you're completely isolated. And so I made up this silly dice game and you roll two dice. And if you rolled a two, it was a home run. You rolled a three, it was a triple. Four was a double. It's really simple. But major league players to me were like gods and they were way too above my silly little dice game. So actually the players in my game that I used with the dice game were my cows. And I would go by body type. Okay, all our cows had names on the farm. So like Rebecca, who was our first cow, she had like a first and third baseman type body. Okay, (laughs) and she was like a power hitter type body. And then we had a smaller cow uh, named Felicia. She was definitely a center fielder. There's no doubt about it. And those were the names that I used in my silly dice games because players were beyond like my imagination, you know, and so the player who really, for me, illuminated that was Reggie Jackson, because God darn, that guy ripped my guts out. OK, as a Dodger fan in 1977, he hits five home runs a series. He hits three homers in game six. And then the next year, the Dodgers come back. I'm 14 years old. I'm in the eighth grade. 
Uh, the Dodgers win game one and two. Bob Welch blows away Reggie with a fastball to end game two. And I'm like, yeah, here we go. Right. We're finally going to beat the stupid Yankees. Uh, and I doubled down all my bets at Are You High, Randolph Union High School. And the Yankees come back and they win game three. Greg Nettles playing a great third base. Game four, Reggie cheats. He sticks his hip in the way of a throw going to first base. I go down Bitter Boulevard. They lose game four. They lose game five. And then they lose game six. And it's Reggie again who punctuates it with a home run off Bob Welch. So he ruined my childhood. There's no doubt about it. it. Made me cry multiple times. And so years later, I'm working at the New York Times. I'm covering the Yankees. You know, I'm 32 years old. And he sees me and, you know, because I he sees my press credential, New York Times. And Reggie's very media friendly. And we start talking. And I, you know, had a blast. But there's this little voice going on in the back of my head like, Oh my God, I used to hate you so much. <laughs> and I, I've never told him that story, but I've always sort of laughed about it. But it was sort of that separation when, uh, you know, baseball players were gods when I was a kid. Uh, and, you know, for you, on the other hand, you know, you were around these guys. And I always wondered how different that would be where you walk into a clubhouse and there's Pete Rose or there's, uh, you know, Tony Perez. As opposed for me, who's afraid to even put their names in my dice game, lest I sully their names. It, you know, it, it's a, it's a interesting for for me growing up because I think you know, as I mentioned, my childhood was, you know, I just walked around and I thought, well, this is what every kid does. They go to the ballpark, well, and you know, for the eighties or for the seventies, my dad played for the Phillies. So you mentioned the Pete Roses and and the Mike Schmitz and the Carltons and yeah. Tug McGraw and all these characters, Larry Bow and Bull. And they were like my friends. Like they weren't big league players. Maybe to my friends, it was a big deal. They never would really let me know that it was a big deal. But to me, it was like, no, I'm just going to the ballpark and I, dad's got to take me. I got to put my uni on and I'm going to go shag fly balls with my buddies. <laughs> and it's really not a big deal. It's, it's funny you mentioned, you mentioned Reggie because uh, my dad got traded to the Angels. I believe it was in 82. Right. Uh, from Philly to Anaheim. And, you know, I was, you know, I was a Jersey kid. We all know what Jersey kids are. We don't like California kids. And and I remember dad said, uh, we're going to move the family to Southern Cal. And I'm like, no way. You know, I'm not going there. Surf's up and all this crap. But anyway, I ended up going out there for high school. Ends up being the best move from a, from a baseball standpoint that dad could make for me. But uh, I ended up working in the visiting clubhouse for the Angels. And... Part of my job was, you know, to do the laundry, but the also the perk was I got to be the ball boy down the right field line. And part of that job was warming up Reggie in right field. <laughs> and man, Reggie, you know, we had a good relationship. I was getting a little older now. You know, I'm 16, 17 years old, so I'm not that little kid that can get away with anything. So once in a while, I'd throw the ball over Reggie's head. And he would get so pissed and he'd give me that look and I'd have that attitude of the, what, like I meant to do it, Reggie. And, uh, I remember those days and, and years later, I'm making my debut in, in Seattle and it's 1992. And our first road trip is to Oakland and we're playing in the Coliseum. And I remember coming out of the clubhouse and who's waiting for me. It's Reggie Jackson. And he comes up to me and he's got, I'll remember this and I'll appreciate it uh, so much till forever is uh, he comes up to me, looks at me, gives me a big hug. He's got a tear rolling down his eye and he goes, wow, I 
He goes, I knew you were going to make it. And wow. I thought, wow, now I'm an adult. I can, I can kind of, you know, I can kind of put things into perspective. And I, and I had such an appreciation for that moment at such an early time in, in my, you know, my career that I'm pursuing. I just got to the big leagues and wow, Reggie's waiting for me to congratulate me. I thought that was really cool and a classy move. Uh, we also had him recently on the podcast and I mentioned it to him, but that's a, that's a story that sticks out to me. Now being older and, and having had my day in the game and, and now raising kids, uh, I reflect back on those years and I have such an appreciation for it, yet we were so naive as kids because it was just the norm for us. But looking back, wow, I, I, I've got such neat memories from, you know, the Phillies parade after they won the 80 World Series to, you know, the, the, the things I got to do were countless and, and, and just such an appreciation for it. And, and now I've got a son, you know, that, that, that's in minor league baseball and to watch him, it just, I, I have a little bit of a feeling what, what dad must've felt like, you know, he's not a big leaguer yet, but, but I kind of have that, that feeling a little bit, you know, and you should see my dad now when he watches my son in a ball. I mean, he can't get through a game without crying. If Jake squares one up and hits a line drive somewhere, Gramps is, you know, now I call dad Gramps. Gramps is crying in the sands. I'm like, dad, get it together. You're a professional. But uh, it, it, it's really cool. And, and you mentioned that it is. I took it for granted. But now I really do appreciate uh, the, the childhood and the life I've been able to live. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you about the about Reggie. I'm curious because and you you must probably laugh the last five years. There are all these conversations about bat flips, right? About <laughs> guys who flip and bat where you when you played, you were one of the few guys who if you squared one up, the bat flip would come out. But your bat flip was a little bit like Reggie's. Like when Reggie played, I mean, he you know, he he uh, there are times when he would uh he would flip his bat. There were times when he really killed the ball when he would whip the bat back. And for a left-handed hitter, it's just such a beautiful thing, right? Right. Uh, where he would kill a ball and then he'd fling the bat back almost toward the uh, third base dugout. And that that was awesome. But when you would square one up, you would flip a bat in an air in which nobody flipped the bats. And I'm curious to see if you ever hear, if you ever talk to Reggie about that. We've talked to it. We've talked a little bit about it because everybody likes to tell, you know, as time goes on, Buster, it's unbelievable, right? Like all of a sudden I was, I was the pioneer of the bat flip. And I try to tell people, I try to tell people, no, I was kind of known for it in the early 2000s, but there's guys before me that Dante Bichette had one that I kind of liked out of Colorado, but you're right. Bringing it back to the Reggie days, that's the real beginning. And I think today's game, it's gotten a little carried away. Every, everybody has a bat flipped. And I just find they're uh, a little too premeditated for me, you know, because people always come to me. What do you think about you had this bat flip? And what do you think about the bat flips today? And, and they're kind of taken aback when I say, well, I really don't like them. What do you mean you don't like them? You, and I said, they're, they're different now. I said, I like a Ken Griffey Jr. follow through where he just gives you that shoulder, lets that bat down. And just he's on his way to first base. But everybody in that stadium knows what just happened by his body language. Those are the true bat flips that I love. It, it's not Lance the, Bergman. Lance Bergman did nothing and it was the coolest thing in baseball, right? I'm telling you, if you do nothing now, you, you might. Uh, I don't know. Can you even come back to the to the dugout? Well, do you, you remember what accepted? he used to do? Do you remember what Lance used to do? Didn't he drop his bat and run? No, he laid it on the ground. 
Like it was like setting, like the way you set down your, you know, like a pool, ta- a pool, a, a pool stick on the table as you walk off. It was, and whenever he would smoke a ball, he would actually lay the bat down. If you go back so, and look in video of it, it was awesome because it was so understated. And yet in that moment, you knew. <laughs> right. You knew if he lays that bat down, that's a homer. Yep. <laughs> that's a homer. Uh, tell me about uncle taking you to a game. Uh, Pee Wee Reese, the year's 1975. So this was really, uh, this was a, a really cool moment for me. So I, Grew up in a house of, uh, of uh, I just want to preface this, house of Democrats. So in 1975, you know, playoffs are coming up. Red Sox are, um, they, they shock the world. They win the American League East, and they're going to face the juggernaut Oakland Athletics who've won three straight World Series. And my uncle was a, owned a sporting goods store in Manchester, New Hampshire. And in fact, he always told us, and I don't, you know, didn't independently verify this, that he sold Carlton Fisk his first catcher's met. Um, and so my uncle Bob, uh, would buy bats every spring from Louisville Slugger and Pee Wee Reese, who, uh, the hall of famer who had played with the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, was worked for Louisville Slugger. And so, you know, one day my phone rings and my mom answers and she calls upstairs said, Hey, Buster, guess what? Uncle Bob's got tickets to the playoffs and guess who's going to go with you. And it's 1975. And I go, Gerald Ford, thinking I got to sit next to the to the Republican president of the United States. And she goes, no, Pee Wee Reese. And I'm like, Pee Wee Reese. And of course, me as this huge Dodger fan, I couldn't wait. And I'm I'm not really a memorabilia person, uh, but I do have my scorecard from that day. And along with Eddie Papowski and a few other people that I got autographs from, there's Pee Wee Reese autographs. Uh, and I wish that I, at age 11, that I had had enough knowledge uh, by that age to understand how important he was to Jackie Robinson, because I would have loved now as, a, as an old sports writer to have learned from him, to heard from him what he remembered. But I got to watch that whole game. Game one, Louis Tiant beats Oakland in the first game of that playoffs, and I'm sitting next to Pee Wee Reese. It was pretty cool. See, Pee Wee Reese, you're bringing it back to me. That's that's just like the Koufax for me. It's like it's not real, Pee Wee Reese. We we had Lucas Black on the show, and yeah. he did. He was the he was the guy that played Pee Wee in in that movie, and he told me that the the studying he had to do of of Pee Wee's, and he he tried to get his hands on as much uh, footage of him as he could, and kind of find out from his family members hey what did he do how did he wake up what did he like to eat it it was interesting but peewee reese that's another guy that's kind of out there in the mystical world for me like is peewee reese real i know he's real at the end of the day but someone i never got to see play so i got Um, a good i got a good a good question for you because i my first autograph experience and you tell me how ridiculously absurdly lucky i was as a 10 year old you know being a dodger fan uh but, you know, I obviously anybody who had a connection with Dodgers at that time, I was crazy about. So I was 10 years old and our little league made a trip up to Jerry Park up in Montreal. And I went there with a baseball to get an autograph. And I had one player in mind, and that was Willie Davis, their center fielder who had been traded the previous winner from Mike Marshall, who in 74 won the Cy Young Award for the Dodgers. But I because he had played for the Dodgers, I went there wanted to get his autograph. And I knew nothing about how to get autographs. It was a complete knucklehead, you know, nerd from the woods of Vermont. 
And, and so I go up there with this baseball and I want to get Willie's autograph, but I'm scared to death. I'm so nervous and I'm just watching the game go along first inning, second inning. I, you know, I didn't even approach the, the Expos dugout at that point and I'm building up my courage. And then in the middle of the seventh inning, I make up my mind. Okay. I got to try. And I run down the bleacher. They had the, the an old Jerry Park. They had the, the basically they had those bleacher seats. And so I bang down those bleacher seats, run down the edge of the dugout and meet Willie. Uh, I'm kind of standing over the dugout and he's coming off the field. It's Mr. Davis, Mr. Davis, can I have your autograph, please? And he reaches up and signs it. And I turn around and I go up and security is like coming down, like trying to chase away any other kid who's going to ask. And now that I'm older and I've been around you guys when players or fans and kids are screaming for autographs, I think back to that. I'm like, Nobody signs an autograph in the middle of the game. Like that was crazy that I got that. And I and I think it's awesome though. I think it's the best advertising a baseball player could possibly do. You know, I thought before uh, throwing the simple gesture of throwing a ball into the stands. That's great for the game of baseball. But to sign one, I had a teammate in in Seattle that would do that. Uh, Mike Cameron. And he was kind of that big smile to light up a room, but he would go out of his way whenever he could. And I think it's a it's a great thing for the game. I think whenever you can take time for the for the fans, the only problem that that gets into the mix, the only uh, the only wrench that can get in the middle of as players, we have we have jobs to do as well. And from seven to ten every night. We have a job to do. You know, sometimes people think you're there to sign sign autographs and you're really not. But uh, I, I always try to do that. I, I love to see players that go out of their way and sign whatever you can. As a fan, you've got you've to realize that they have lives too. They have things, you know, we've got to hit checkpoints. Like you were talking about in, when you wake up in the morning, you have, you have an itinerary. You know what you're doing. Uh, we have stuff like that too. We we might have to get ice. We might have to do this. We might have to do an interview. We got early work in the cage, so we can't always sign. But I always thought the best advertisement for this game is to sign whenever you can. In the middle of the game, I didn't always do it. In in certain circumstances, I would. But uh, I think that's really cool, and I, and and I love to see when players reach out to because that's what it is all about. It really is. At the end of the day, it's about those fans. Now, th- the thing is, I I used to feel bad. And this has taken me back a few years, but I'd be in Seattle and once a homestand after batting practice, I would tell the security on top of the dugout, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to sign for 20 minutes. Then I got to go have my pregame meal, but I'm going to sign for 20 minutes. And, you know, you get that big line and there's always someone that's going to be pissed at you because you got to cut the line off sometime and you're going to have that guy that doesn't get there. Oh, we pay your salary. And so you're, it's a no win situation, but I always thought, you know, it's really cool for this game. And I'm definitely from the, from the school of yes, as a professional athlete and, and making the money, especially that they're making today, you do, uh, you are a role model and you do have, have responsibilities, uh, not that necessarily you owe them an autograph, but I think it's in your best interest and for the best interest of the game. So that that's a cool story that he did it uh, mid mid game for you. I, th- I yeah, think and that's to really back cool. up what you're saying, I I I'd never forget this. Uh, you know, I, I covered the Yankees for four years, uh, covered Andy Pettit for four years, and I was at a Lions Club uh, dinner, and there were about fifty people in the room, and you know they were asking me stories about you guys, and you know what's this guy like, and what's Dieter like, and what's Clemens like. 
And uh, someone stands up and prefaces a, a question by saying, you know, I was at Yankee Stadium and I saw Andy Pettit blow past this little girl who was in a, in a wheelchair and I thought it was despicable. And, and I cut the person off and I said, I just want to tell you, Andy Pettit is one of the nicest people that I've met in my lifetime. Forget the baseball. In my lifetime, he is a sincerely, genuinely nice person. And, and everything you just said, I said, he's at his place of work. And if he stops and signs for one, then he knows he's going to have to probably stop and sign for 100. And he has things that he has to go do in his job. I said, imagine if someone came to your place of work and you had a line of people who wanted your autograph. Uh, it's it's an impossible quandary. And, and I said, I'm just telling you, whatever your perception of him, that's wrong. He's a good dude. Yeah. And, and, you know, you could just get caught. You could sign 250 autographs and, and 250 first that just got in that, just got in the stadium and just got in that line. Uh, <laughs> they're going to go home telling that story, how big of a jerk I am. And, and you can never win, but I, I still think you can always do the right thing and do what you can yep. do. Uh, a couple people that were, you know, doing my research here, uh, were pretty pretty influential in your life. Tell me about in high school, Red Smith um, coming to talk. I, I I don't know how. I think he came to your high school and and spoke. Uh, he was a he was a Times columnist. That's exactly right. He worked. He was the the first sports columnist to ever win a Pulitzer Prize, and he was in his mid seventies. Uh, and he came and spoke. Up. My parents knew I was not going to be smart enough to fix tractors, so they sent me off to boarding school. Uh, and so, so the, there are English teachers there who were like, okay, who's the, who's someone who really likes sports? What kid really likes sports? And I'm a sophomore and they sat me down next to, to next to Red Smith who had covered Babe Ruth among other people. And, you know, I was sort of at that age at age 15 where I'm, I'm five, seven and three quarters. And I'm fine. I'm sort of realizing at that age that I'm not going to be the power forward for the Lakers, which is what I really wanted to do or the second baseman for the Dodgers, that's not going to happen. And so they sit me down next to him, and I loved hearing him talk, and I loved the stories about people, and I loved his passion. And so, uh, you know, and as part of the, you'll appreciate this, as part of that conversation, I ask him, why is, uh, and I can't even pronounce his last name, Robert, uh, Rabbit Marinville, Moranville in the Hall of Fame. Like, if you look at his statistics, Mr. Smith, he's just not good enough and as I'm halfway through that dissertation, I'm giving him this argument. Uh, I realize he saw him play, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, and I feel like such a jerk. Uh, but I came off of that uh, dinner, and I realized, you know what? I love sports, and I love to write, and that's what I want to do. And you know, my son now is a senior in high school. My daughter's a senior in college, and you know that my son is figuring out what he wants to do. And I realized how lucky I was that I knew at age 15 exactly what I wanted to do. And that came out of that, uh, that dinner with Red Smith. And I started writing in our, our high school paper, which came out once a week, um, within a month after that. And I, you know, that's something my mom wanted me to be a lawyer, uh, but I always wanted to be a sports writer. While I got a quick second, support for the Boone podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. And guys, when it came to the equipment I used on the field, it was so important. From the bat I used to the glove I used to the spikes I wore. And when it comes to personal grooming, just as picky, Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. 
Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0, and I'm blown away by the performance, the craftsmanship, and the details on the 4.0 are next level. Also, the underwear. The underwear is unbelievable. They're as comfortable as any underwear I've ever worn. Get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code BOON. That's promo code BOON at manscaped.com. And now back to my conversation with ESPN's own Buster Only. So you go to Vanderbilt. Uh, you're a history major, though. Yeah. Uh, so so take me through that. I'm thinking, you know, when I was preparing for this, I'm thinking, well, Buster is probably, a, you know, a journalism major. No, history major. But you had decided uh, when you went to college that, no, I want to be a writer. That's right. And I, you know, knew that from the time I was 15. <laughs> you know, a lot of writers are English majors uh, and I hate poetry. I never had any interest in poetry. So I'm like, I'm not taking the, the 12 hours of poetry required in an English major. Um, I do have always loved history. I mentioned my mom got remarried. My stepfather's name is Lincoln. His name is Ed Lincoln. He lives in uh, Burlington. Uh, and so, uh, you know, given that connection, he's a distant relative of Abraham Lincoln. And so at age seven or eight, I got big into Civil War history to this day. In fact, if, you know, if we had a Zoom call, you could see I got a picture of Abraham Lincoln on the wall behind me. Uh, and I am, as much as I am a baseball nerd, I am a Civil War nerd. And a history nerd, I love that stuff. You know, traveling to battlefields um, and, and all that. So, yeah, when I went to Vanderbilt, I was a history major. But really, what I majored in—if you look at my actual transcript, which is not impressive—you uh, can tell that I worked a lot on the school newspaper and I played a ton of pickup basketball at Memorial Gym, which you remember. You probably—I don't know if you've been to Vanderbilt's uh, gym, but it stands out because they've got the uh, the benches are actually on the end lines which drove opposing uh, coaches crazy when they would come in and visit, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, teams that uh, Will Purdue and others played on. Yeah, Vanderbilt, it, it's it's a hotbed. A lot of players come out of Vanderbilt. Uh, shoot, Tyler Kepner came out of Vanderbilt. Um, See, here's the thing. You mentioned that, and I've told – I just told this to Dansby Swanson, who went to Vanderbilt. I said, you know what? For years and years and years, the best people in sports or the most prominent people in sports uh, out of Vanderbilt were, were sports writers. Grantland Rice, Skip Bayless, Dave Shinen, Tyler Kepner. Uh, I could go on and on and on. And then the stupid baseball players came along. That baseball program got great. You know, Pedro Alvarez and David Price, and they ruined it for us sports writers. That's right. Now, Van, I mean, back in back in those days, I mean... You know, I went to USC, Pac six at the time. That was that was a big deal, but now it's it's Vanderbilt, it's that SEC. You know, I you mentioned Dansby Swanson. I, I worked for the A's for a couple of years um, as a special assistant on the minor league side, and I remember going to that SEC tournament. I think it was fourteen or fifteen. He was drafted, and I remember watching Dansby Swanson. I remember watching Alex Bregman, and the right fielder. Uh, who was it? He led the nation that year in hitting. Red Sox just got traded to the Royals. Give me a name. Oh, Give me a name. Andrew Benintendi. Benintendi, and I remember those three. And I was with the A's. They said, Booney, what do you think? And I and they and I named those three. And they said, Well, that doesn't matter because we don't pick till nineteenth, and all three are going to be gone. <laughs> but I had Dansby on top, and uh, I. 
Bregman kind of he he's he surprised me. I didn't think he was going to be the power guy. A couple of years ago, he hit close to forty home runs, or he might have hit forty. I, I never saw that out of that SEC tournament. But you're right that uh, it's a hotbed now for players. They ruin it for for you guys that are that are covering the game. All right, your first gig, eighty nine Nashville Sounds. Yep. Another guy runs into your life uh, that's, I think, pretty influential and, and played a big role, and that's Don Meyer, uh, the, the basketball coach. I, I think it was at Lipscomb uh, University. Yeah. he. Uh, so, you know, in the summertime, I covered the Nashville Sounds. They were the AAA affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds at that time. And so, uh, you know, guys come through there like Chris Hammond and Jack Armstrong and Skeeter Barnes, who, you know, was my favorite player to cover on that team. Uh, in the wintertime, I covered City College basketball, and one of those teams uh, was Lipscomb. And at that time, um, you know, they were the number one team in the country, NAIA uh, basketball, which is a level, uh, you know, below uh, Division One NCAA. But if you go to the Basketball Hall of Fame, the all-time leading scorer in history college basketball was John Pierce, who was a red shirt on that team that I covered. And the all the guy whose record he broke was Philip Hutchison, who was the center of that team. You know, Coach Meyer's teams, they were the, one of those first teams that basically had the run and gun, shoot three-pointer style. They have the all-time leading three-point score in the history of college basketball. And Coach Meyer, uh, you know, he had, uh, later in his life, he broke Bob Knight's record for career, career wins by a college coach. And so I, I met uh, Coach Meyer those two years like a lot of basketball guys, I'm sure you've run into this. He was a huge baseball fan and uh, he pitched in college. And so even after I left Nashville and went on to other places and started covering Major League Baseball, I kept up with him, uh, you know, and uh, and I was it, I was at his uh, when I was around him was at that sort of same age that his players was. It was like 24, 25. And he talked a lot about commitment to excellence, like a lot of co- college coaches will and a lot of what he said really stuck with me in terms of where I was professionally. Um, he let me into all the team meetings. <laughs> he let me, you know, go to all the practices. And so I absorbed a lot of what Coach Meyer said. You move on. Uh, you go to the San Diego uh, Union Tribune and then on to the Baltimore Sun. And in 1997, uh, you arrive at the New York Times and – my question is, was that always the goal? Is that is that the pinnacle? Is it getting to New York? There's no doubt about it. Now, I will tell you the first time that I interviewed in New York, I mean, you know, on my hometown is 400 people and 1,000 cows. And so I had care, bore all the worst stereotypes in New York. You know, I step off the plane and waiting to get mugged by 50 different people, scared to death. Um, but I remember also feeling the energy uh, of the city the first time I went to interview for a job at the New York Times. Um, and, and I, you know, that absolutely was the goal. You know, I, you know, when I went to San Diego, uh, I was a high school reporter and then I got to cover the Padres. It was an absolute gift for me to cover Tony Gwynn because not only was he a Hall of Fame player, uh, but he also loved to talk about the sport. Uh, and he loved to share. And I learned so much from Tony. I'm so thankful that he was the, you know, the first major star that I got to cover. Uh, went to Baltimore. Cal Ripken was a great player, but he was the opposite of Tony in terms of wanting to share. Um, 
But I always knew I wanted to come back up to either the New York Times or the Boston Globe, which were the two papers that I read on Sundays. And uh, yeah, so to get hired by the Times, that that was absolutely for me like climbing uh, climbing Mount Everest. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the Padres and, and the Orioles. Th- those are you know the smaller market, but there is nothing like New York. Um, and and that's the one thing I wish in my career I'd have, I'd have been able to finish and and play one year in New York. I always loved as a player. Uh, my favorite trip was we're going to, we're going to New York and we're playing the Yankees. There was something special about it. It was prime time, no matter if it was a Tuesday day game. It just when I walked into Yankee Stadium, I knew I was somewhere somewhere special. Now I liked going to Fenway Park and in Wrigley. There's a lot of history there, but something for me the hustle and bustle just finding a way to get to the ballpark, whether it was a cab. Once in a while, I I take the uh, I take the train. Really? Usually, we had a car waiting for us. Uh, but man, it, it was just something. I'd get in that car and I'd be going over the bridge, and I'd be thinking, "I'm going somewhere special tonight." I remember I got to play in a World Series there, taking the line, you know, before the game, and just running my sprints. Uh, because usually, as players, you know, there 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 are anxiety moments or there are anxious moments. But I remember. Uh, I, I never got anxious on the side, you know, running my sprints before a game. And it was game three, I think, in the 99 World Series. I'm running my sprints and my heart's pumping. I'm like, this isn't normal. <laughs> this is normal for my first you've been around baseball your whole life. Yeah, there's something special about it. And I just loved it. I love the New York fans. I love walking down the street, coming out of the Hyatt. And just taking a stroll before I go to the ballpark and having some New Yorker yell at me from across the, uh, across, the, you know, on the other sidewalk, Boone, you suck. We're going to kick your butt tonight. And, and I just, it would put a smile on my face and I, I couldn't wait to get to the ballpark. And I always thought one day before it's all said and done, you know, I want to play for the Yankees or I want to play for the Mets. Never happened for me, but you're right. It is, it's something different. There's something special. Now from, from a, uh, Writer's standpoint, what were the challenges uh, of New York versus like a San Diego, a laid back? You don't have all that competition with with five different newspapers. Explain to me the difference between a San Diego, a Baltimore and the bright lights in New York. Yeah. And it was a major difference. I was the only in the last year that I covered the team in 94. I was the only writer who traveled with the team. I mean, think about that compared to New York, where you can walk into a clubhouse and there might be 20 writers standing there. Um, The players go on strike in 1994 and uh, Andy Bennis, who was the player rep for the Padres, all the all the Padres had agreed. You know what? Uh, The first day of the the strike, we're going to go and play golf. And Andy Bennis is like, hey, you want to come? (laughs) <laughs> and you so I go. played I played in his foursome that fall I played on a rec league team with uh with Brad Osmus and with Bruce Bochy who was still the third base coach at that time on and on the, the, the Kevin Towers was the uh was the coach along with Randy Smith of that team uh and I was like the Dave Twardzik of that team in terms of what I would brought to the table uh and, and you know by the way Bruce Bochy you would be shocked that his game was a 12 foot, 12 to 15 foot jumper. Like you look at him and you think he's like pounding people inside as a former catcher, but no, he's like shooting 12 to 15 footers. So I go from covering the Padres where it's that intimate and you know the players in that way. And then you go to New York and you have all the writers um, and obviously a lot more competition for stories. 
But I got to say, I loved covering those Yankee teams because they loved baseball. And you can speak to this better than I can because you competed against them. But, you know, I the, the Orioles team that I covered in 96, you know, half the guys wouldn't run out ground balls. And it drove me crazy. Uh, and I couldn't stand watching it. And I, I remember getting lectured by one of the Orioles because I would write about this. And then I remember going back to him after I'd covered the Yankees for a couple of years. And I said, remember you said that to me? Like, veteran teams don't run out ground balls. And I'm like, all I'm going to tell you is Derek Jeter runs out every ground ball. And Joe Girardi backs up every throw to first base. And these guys were so passionate about what they did. That was really cool as a writer. Um, and there were some, you know, there would be times when there was craziness in New York and George Steinbrenner wasn't as crazy as he was in the 70s, but he could suddenly come down and tell uh, Cashman, yeah, you're going to trade Andy Pettit before the deadline. Or, or he might dr- drop in and, uh, you know, a- and rip somebody like Adeki Arabu for not covering first base in the spring training game. But mostly I love to, to write about the baseball and those guys on those teams we're passionate about baseball, and that was fun to cover. Yeah, you covered the Mets in 97, and then, uh, like you mentioned, the Yankees from 98 to 01. And you're right. That was a special group. By the way, I'll preface this with saying I couldn't stand them. And I think it was more it, it was more from a, my heart was broken by them a couple times. I, I got beat up by them in the uh, World Series in 99. Uh, I was with the Braves that year. And then 01, when when uh, that Mariner team I was on, we won 116. And we rolled into Yankee Stadium thinking, well, we'll just handle business here like we always do and like we had done the entire season. We end up getting beat in New York in 2001. So as much as I joke that I couldn't stand those guys, you're right. That was a class group of guys uh, that obviously – they had they had a serious culture at that time in New York. That that run they went on when they won the four rings, uh, something pretty darn special. And a lot of great players. I, I remember going in there, going, "Damn that Paul O'Neill, he's going to get us tonight somehow." And it was it was if it wasn't him, it was somebody else. But they had so many great players, and 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 the way they played, and the way they they played as a team. It was just there was something special there, and, and you could tell. Yeah, the great players were there, but it was more than that. The culture that they had created and and Joe Torre had created in that clubhouse was something that's you know it's going to go down in history. Nine um, eleven. You guys were trying to beat their record. I mean, you beat their regular season record with wins, and if you had gone on and won the World Series in two thousand one. Uh, you would have you would have beaten their uh, you know full season record of 125 wins. But I thought by 2000, you know, 2001, that group was tired and they were kind of breaking down and they were older. But their experience became such a weapon for them uh, that even when they didn't look like they were playing very well, when they got to October, it was like the light went on for those guys. Yeah, because like I said, our team, we were the better team. You were the better team. Right, and we went in, I'll tell you, every year in my career, Buster, you're always, you get to, you know, every time I was fortunate enough to get to that postseason, every game was a grind, and we got to play our best to win and come out of there. That team in 01, it was a foregone conclusion. I mean, yeah. we didn't care that it was the Yankees. We, I, I think we had handled the Yankees decently that year, but I remember going to that you know, going to, to Yankees say, I'm thinking we're going to handle this series just like we handled every other series. And when we got, we got 
bump from the playoffs, sitting on that bus, going back to the hotel. I remember looking around that bus, and it was just a shock amongst those players because we are on such a magic carpet ride that entire year. It, we almost started to believe that, well, it's destiny, of course. We, we have to go because it's a formality. we got to go play the Yankees, beat them. Then whoever is going to come from the National League will beat them. We'll get our trophy, and we'll go home, and we'll talk about it for the next 20 years. That didn't happen. But, uh, you know, it, it was – Man, that's why I didn't like him, Buster. That stadium, there's ghosts in that stadium. Aaron told me years later when he when he got a chance to play for the Yankees, you know, for just a brief time, he said, Jeter used to tell him, there's ghosts. Wait till the ghosts come out. You know, I know that's half kidding, but I swear there's ghosts in that old stadium. I swear there is. I've seen too many weird things happen at inopportune times for the for the opponent, but uh, definitely, definitely interesting. 9-11. Where were you? Uh, I was at home. Uh, my daughter, Sydney, was a year and a half old. And my mom called me from Vermont and said there some uh, pilot had a heart attack and went into one of the into the World Trade Center. And so I turned on the television about uh, two minutes before the second plane went into the South Tower and I just remember feeling in that first hour, because after I watched a few minutes of it, I just, uh, you know, I said to my wife, um, look, um, let's go take Sydney to a playground. And you're just sitting there and she's on a swing. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my God, we're never going to feel she's never going to feel as safe as I did growing up as a kid. Um, you know, and I uh, in the in the days that followed, you know, two days later, no one knew what was going to happen with the baseball season. I mean, you know better than I do. There's some players. I remember Scott Brosh is telling me, uh, geez, I don't even know why I'm here. Like, we shouldn't even continue the baseball season. He talked about how upset his kids were. Um, and no one knew, uh, you know, how baseball was going to handle it, how the teams were going to handle it. Uh, I think the players initially felt so out of place. But as you know, the White House kept calling to Major League Baseball saying, look, you got to play, keep playing, let's go. And then the Yankees had a – were asked as a team to go down to the armory where a lot of people were waiting to hear word of their loved ones. And obviously, um, you know, no one got good news there. But the players told me afterward that sort of the turning point moment for all of them was when Bernie Williams saw uh, a woman who was crying and he said, look, I, I, I don't know your name, but you look like you could use a hug. And I think the players all in that moment realized, you know what, we can provide a momentary distraction. Um, but I get asked all the time, uh, you know, what was the most memorable thing you ever covered? And I talked about baseball after 9-11 and with the addendum that, of course, you hope you never go through anything like that again, because that was surreal. I mean, you mentioned, you know, that 2001 series between you guys and the Yankees. Uh, it felt like at that point, like not all the Yankees have a lot of accomplished players, but they had the whole emotional weight of not only the city, but a lot of people around the world who were rooting for them to get through because they, you know, were sort of seen as uh, semi, you know, semi-official representatives of the state of New York because of everything that had gone on. Yeah, I remember we were in Anaheim, and, and you're right. That's how the players initially thought. It was we didn't know what to think. Yep. And it was a few days before we could even get on a plane and, and go back to Seattle. And as time went on, you know, there was started to have some meetings and some conference calls and and uh, talking to other players around the league from other ball clubs. 
And I think it came down to, you know, I don't think there were that, um, you know, the Bernie Williams story, I think, is is so uh, correct in that context was there was a lot of that going on around the country, you know, in different yeah. cities and on different ball clubs. And I think I remember there was kind of a point where we were talking to, I, you know, because I was mostly talking to my teammates and we just decided collectively, like, you know, I think this would be good for the to start the healing process for this country. And, and it will give people, uh, you know, a release from from the mourning that's going on throughout the country. And it was just one big phone call where everybody was on board said, let's play, let's do the right thing and let's go out and continue on and show that nothing's going to stop us here. And I do remember coming to, to uh, New York for that playoff series. And we got a chance. They took us down uh, to ground zero. And I remember what an eerie, eerie feeling I had. And I, it was John Olerud and myself were in a group and we were just walking through the rubble. And, and I mean, this is weeks later and that smoke is just, still billowing and yeah. and talk about surreal and and real moments that that's one of the true moments that I'll never forget and there was you know there weren't these fancy iPhones back then so we don't have a lot of footage of it but I I can remember uh th- those visions I I still have them I can still picture myself sitting there because I remember turning to Johnny with his with his helmet on with his yellow helmet going rude this is unbelievable and it was yeah it was a surreal time um, you wrote a bestseller, The Last Night of the Yankees Dynasty in 2004. Uh, how did that come about? So I, you know, I always knew I wanted, I wanted to write a book. Um, I, I, I got off the baseball beat after the 2001 season um, because I, I knew my daughter. I, I needed to be at home. I actually covered the New York Giants for one year in 2002. Uh, but I wanted to do a book on that group of players. And it really occurred to me. Um, you know, as that World Series ends, it's the last game for Paul O'Neill in 2001. It's the last game for Scott Brocious. They both retired. Chuck Knobloch, who was really important as a leadoff hitter for them, he gets traded. Um, and it felt like that the culture of the team was changed. You know, Tina Martinez left that team as well, uh, became a free agent. He would later come back. But it was a turning point moment. And so I, I realized, like, that even though the Yankees would go on and they would play in the World Series in 2003, that group, 96 to 2001, that was a distinct dynasty to play in the World Series for five, you know, five times in six years. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously Hall of Famers and Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera. Um, but I, no matter uh, the, the fact that those guys continue to play, I still think that that was a group that was effectively defined by Paul O'Neill by Tino Martinez, uh, you know, David Cohn, you know, was such an important part of that group. And so I, I, you know, wrote about game seven of 2001 being the last night of the Yankee dynasty, uh, you know, with Rivera on the cover of the book because he was on the mound. And to me, he was the separator between those Yankee teams and the Atlanta team that you played on. Uh, and I had this conversation with some of your Braves teammates through the years, you know, Chipper Jones and John Smoltz and others, like how many championships would the would the Braves have won if they had had that special weapon that Rivera was that nobody else had? The guy who could come in in the postseason and get six outs throwing the exact same pitch over and over and over again. Uh, and, of course, the irony was is that it ended with Mo on the mound, uh, you know, giving up that broken bat hit to Luis, uh, Luis Gonzalez. 
joined ESPN in 2003. Uh, how did things change for you at that point? And, and I've talked to some of your, your colleagues, and that was the time where, where things were changing. And, and writers now, you're getting in the makeup chair. And now you're, <laughs> now you're, a, a, you're a TV star. Um, oh, my God. How, how was that change for you? Brutal. And, yeah, just talk, talk me through those early days at ESPN. Oh, my God. So I have no form. To this day, I don't have any formal training in television. Um, you know, they, they had a great uh, a coach who knew that if he tried to give me too much, he was going to overwhelm me because I was an idiot. I was, all I had was my, uh, you know, my history as a reporter. But um, the first time they asked me to go on SportsCenter was actually when Javier Lopez signed a free agent deal with the Baltimore Orioles, and they – uh, uh, Bristol is about an hour and 15 minutes from where I am. So I drive up there. Uh, they put makeup on me. The, you know, the poor makeup artist is, is trying to make, you know, make do with less than, than she ever has before. And, and I had done, you know, they call them single shots. You know, this where you're sitting in front of a camera, you're staring into a camera, you have an earpiece and you're talking into the camera. That's pretty simple. You go into a studio and it's a very different animal. And so my heart, He's going 120 beats a minute. And oh, by the way, the anchor that day is Dan Patrick, who I'd never met before in my life. But Dan Patrick, I'm assuming, came out of the womb with that great <laughs> television voice yep. and that great understanding of how cameras work. And so I was sitting on the side and they're like, you just hold on here. Your segment's coming up. And there's a camera. There's one camera in front of me. I'm like, Whew, OK, I got this. I got the one single shot and I'm good. Well, they go to commercial and all of a sudden they're freaking five cameras rolling at me. And here comes Dan Patrick. Hey, Buster, how's it going? Nice to meet you. <laughs> and, and my heart rate is going from 120 to 280. And Dan is talking to me and I'm not hearing him because I'm like, all of these cameras, where am I? And I say to Dan, as the stage manager yells out, 15 seconds. And, and I'm like, where am I supposed to look? Oh, it's very simple. You start out looking at the jib, then you come back to me, then you look to camera one, then you come back to me, and then we look at the jib. And so he asked me, you know, why the Orioles signed Javi Lope, and I friggin' froze. I mean, it was bad. And I walked <laughs> off, and I'm, I'm one minute, you've seen the movie Broadcast News, yes? Yes. Yeah, where the guy goes into the flop sweat. I am one minute from being Albert Brooks, uh, of having that <laughs> kind of flop sweat on national television. And it was so bad that as I walk off, uh, one of the news editors at ESPN greets me, goes, no, don't worry about it, Buster. You'll figure it out. You know, you, once you get some reps, uh, you'll be OK. We got your free information. And so sure enough, as time went on, I mean, that was a time when you had ESPN News on a regular basis and all these shows. And I got a thousand rounds of batting practice and I got my heart rate eventually down to 150 from from 280 uh, and got more comfortable with it. But it was it was a. Uh, and it, it was a difficult transition, but it was important because I you could see where the industry was going that, you know, television, radio were going to become part of what reporters were going to do. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I've I've done a million interviews in my life. And, and if Buster Olney's going to interview me, that's the easiest thing in the world. Put the camera on. Give me a mic and I can sit back in my chair, not slouch, yeah. but in a very you're here to interview me kind of way. And I remember the first time I went on the MLB set and I'm gonna, now I've got to be, I'm giving you the news. Well, I've never done this before. I'm always the news. And I remember f seeing a tape of me 
after my first segment, you know, how did I do? How did I do? <laughs> I'm slouching, you know, got my arms and like, all right, they're here for me. You know, now I see why people have that pen in their hand and get your shoulders square and, and don't slouch and stand upright. There is an art to it. You talk about getting reps without a doubt. Getting reps is a huge part of it. Uh, because it's a learning process. It's educational, but uh, that's interesting. Have you ever heard the story about uh, David Ross, his first game, doing it with your brother? No. So David Ross goes in the television booth for the first time, and obviously he's got the knowledge. You you guys all have the knowledge, and he had all these notes, and after like the first inning and a half, your brother reaches over, grabs the pile of notes that David Ross has in front of him, and throws them into the garbage and said, watch the game. <laughs> yeah yeah without a doubt put your eyes on that game and, and the baseball the, the baseball will kick in um colleague of yours uh what, what an amazing guy just touch on him a little bit pedro gomez he passed away recently but but uh man he 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 was a special person he was. And, you know, Pedro and I go way back. Um, I would he hated it when I tell this story. It was a lie um, that the actual part of it was, is that when I got my job in San Diego, that was replacing Pedro on the San Diego Union Tribune. He was a high school writer and he got a job covering uh, the Oakland Athletics for the San Jose Mercury News. And so I would always tell people, yeah, my big break came when Pedro was fired. No, he wasn't actually fired. He, he was uh, promoted into this job covering Oakland. Um, and I was always kind of, when I was in San Diego, I was always jealous of Pedro because everyone would always talk about, hey, Pedro's coming back into town. How cool is that? And meanwhile, you know, I'm a newbie trying to find my way covering high schools in San Diego. And everyone just loved Pedro so much. And he did no wrong when he was in San Diego. And everyone adored Pedro. And I was a little much more awkward. Uh, and then... You know, as it turned out that when I went to interview for the New York uh, for ESPN for the first time in 2003, Pedro had just started there as well. And, you know, we became really good friends, uh, obviously incredibly jealous of, of uh, uh, the fact that he was bilingual and he could speak to everyone. And I was always in awe of how uh, fearless he was and how, you know, in difficult spots, he would stand his ground, uh, you know, no more so than that, you know, those two years when he was assigned uh, Barry Bonds with our daily coverage. And that must have been really difficult. Uh, but he he was on top of it. And he was, you know, when Yasiel Puig first went to the Dodgers and most of the reporting on Yasiel at that time was, yeah, what a great player. And he's a, you know, he's a, uh, you know, exciting player. And Pedro was the first one to say, you know, their concerns about him showing up late, and some of the other players are frustrated with him. He was fearless as a reporter, uh, and he was a great guy. And it was I, I was not aware until after he passed away of all of the connections that he made with people, not only players, but just people around the country. That all came spelling out in the aftermath. And, oh, by the way, the two people that I heard from about his passing were Alex Cora and your brother. Um, called me during the Super Bowl at basically the exact same time. Uh, and it was heartbreaking. He's going to be very missed. Just finished the World Series Braves win. 
I couldn't have been more wrong going into the into the postseason. They lined up those ten teams. They said, "All right, Brett, who's least likely to win?" I said, "The Atlanta Braves." <laughs> and then I watched the Atlanta Braves play, yeah. and I watched these players almost uh, come to life in front of me because I know about Freeman. Okay, I know about one of the best players in the game, Acuna. I know you lost him. I know Albie's how he can uh, change a game with his feet. Uh, but getting to watch Riley. Yep. Uh, getting to see Rosario have an unbelievable postseason. The center fielder coming up with, with big hits. Jock Peterson coming off the bench with his pearls. I, I, I became a semi-Jock Peterson fan watching this. The way they put it together, Morton breaking his, <laughs> breaking his leg, but still finding a way. You know, We know the, the talent that Freed has, but he really came up big in that final game he pitched and it was such an effort Matzik in, in the bullpen and, sure. and Will Smith not giving up a run. And over the years, fans, people ask, you know, how hard is it to win a world series? Really hard. It's unbelievable. I have so much respect and, and almost uh, I'm jealous of the people that get those rings. Cause I know it's not just about putting great players on the field and just winning. If that were the case, the 90s Braves would have seven World Series championships. It's a lot more than that. It's catching, getting hot at the right time, and all these pieces coming together. I watched that Atlanta Braves team come together. It was pretty impressive to watch, and, and I was really happy for them in the end. Give me your just a quick view of how you felt about that postseason. Yeah, and I, I watched the Braves a lot during the year because uh, they happen to be my son's favorite baseball team. I have no idea how a kid who grew up in Westchester, New York, his whole life, the Braves are his team. Actually, it was because he had Freddie Freeman on a fantasy team. Uh, and just being around them, you being a baseball, you know, someone who grew up in baseball, uh, you would recognize before me how incredible their culture is and how great their coaching staff is. And I don't mean to, you know, dump on, you know, coaches who take the untraditional route of, you know, working through uh, some of these academies or special hitting coaches. But when you've got Ron Washington and Eric Young and Sal Fasano and Rick Kranitz, um, it's an all-star coaching staff. And when your best player is Freddie Freeman, who's as good a person as you're going to want to meet, and Ozzie Albies, you know, coming in every day with his energy, uh, it is a remarkable culture that they have. And so I, you know, I, I picked them to beat the Dodgers and I picked them to, to, uh, to win the World Series uh, in part because you could see them coming together. And it was really cool. People ask me all the time, you know, who do you root for? Uh, you know, what teams do you root for? And, and me being a Dodger fan, that one went away in 1989 when I started covering professionally. But you root for good people. Uh, for good things to happen to good people. And that's what it felt like when the Braves won the World Series. Crystal ball moving into the offseason. Dodgers, Yankees, Padres. I was, how about Buster Posey? Yeah. I've got to tip my cap to him. The man does what he wants to do, you know, but I I, I watched his swing in the postseason. This guy's still on top of his game, especially from an offensive standpoint. He does a great job behind the plate, really. And as I get older, another thing, as I get older, I've really come to appreciate the importance of a great catcher back there and how they run a staff and how that staff loves throwing to, to a great catcher. It makes such a huge difference being on the same page. He's been one of the best in the, in the last uh, decade. All of a sudden, he, he retires. The Dusty Baker situation in, 
in Houston. Kershaw not getting not getting a contract from the Dodgers. I have a I have an inkling he'll probably end up signing with the Dodgers. Yeah. But to, if you want to touch on some of those topics, Dodgers, Yankees, Padres, what do they got to do to get better? Yeah, and and of course, all of it is uh, you know we're looking through the lens of this potential labor issue. We'll see how that affects. Um, look, the Dodgers, and we saw it today, they signed Andrew Heaney. Um, I, I think that they are fully prepared internally for the departure of Corey Seager. Um, if Corey Seager wound up with the Yankees, that wouldn't shock me. I think uh, you know he fits them in a lot of ways. Uh, left-handed hitter for what has generally been a right-handed hitting lineup. Uh, he has lost range at shortstop. Uh, the metrics show that. But in some ways, he's a great fit for the Yankees because he can play shortstop for a year, maybe a year and a half, two years. And their best prospects are shortstops. And these are, you know, guys, uh, I think Anthony Volpe is the guy considered to be the shortstop of the future. So that transition will be uh, pretty ready. I think the Yankees are going to be really aggressive in free agency this winter to try to get better. Uh, San Diego, I'm fascinated by them because they're the one team that where it feels like the owner is not spending within his means. Um, You know, Mike Illich, who owned the Tigers, did this, where he went way above what probably his team's revenues were. And that's what it feels like with the Padres owner, that he is determined that he's going to have a winner. And so I'm curious how much money they actually spend, because as you saw with their deals in recent years, they gave up so much talent in these trades for Blake Snell and other players. Uh, in the eyes of, of executives of other teams, they strip mine their farm system. So it'll be interesting to see how the Padres try to get better. I think the hiring of Bob Melvin was perfect because they clearly needed a manager with experience that had credibility with the players as they move forward after having two managers who didn't have major league experience. And sometimes I think that's overrated, but what it really comes down to is what do the players trust? And Bob Melvin will be trusted. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I remember when they, <clears throat> I had Bob in his rookie year in 2003. He managed me in, in Seattle. I had him for a couple of years. Uh, a lot of years have gone by and a lot of experience. And uh, he, he's, he's acquired a lot of credentials since then. Uh, but I heard that news. You know, the obvious fit, Buster, this offseason was Will Bruce come out of retirement? Bochi, of course, he's the perfect fit, especially yeah. from a PR standpoint. You just had one of the, the biggest fails in the second half. I didn't see that coming. Now, they were in the toughest division with the Giants and the Dodgers, but I didn't see the collapse that the Padres had this season. I didn't see that happening. So, so perfect sense means you get Bruce Bochy to come back on board. Everybody loves Bruce. Uh, Kumbaya. Now let's go buy our season tickets for 2022. Obviously that didn't come together. Uh, the Melvin thing kind of got me off balance. Like, where did that come from? He's not managing Oakland now, but I thought about it for a second and I think you hit on some important things. He's got a very calming way about him, calming presidents. When he walks into a room, he has the respect of the players. He's been there. He's done that. He's been around the block. I think it's a great move for him. I think it's going to be really a settling. And, and I guess the word, I'll use it again. It's a calming presence that Bob Melvin has coupled with his experience. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think that uh, Oakland, the fact that the athletics let him go with a year left on his contract tells you about the future with the athletics, that they're probably going to go into – uh, you know, payroll slashing mode this winter, which means Matt Olson, Matt Chapman could be moved along. 
Uh, I am really curious, and you're going to know far more about this than I am. Fernando Tatis Jr. decides not to have surgery on that shoulder. I thought the first time, you know, because I just through the years, you cover players who have shoulder issues, you know, Richie Sexton, David Justice, uh, his shoulder would pop out from time to time with his swing. Um, and I just assumed this offseason that that would be part of what would happen with Fernando Tatis Jr. Because it wasn't only about him missing games and how that shoulder affected him. But from what I understand from the coaching staff, it also meant that he didn't get the reps on the field before the game. And he you know, was really good on defense in 2020. And he was really bad on defense in 2021. And I got to believe that's related to those reps that he didn't have on the field. I think that could be a part of it. I, re- I remember my, uh, my year in Atlanta, 99, um, I had two torn labrums and they were partially torn. And I remember I got in and I went round and round. Uh, I, oh man, whatever they were giving me to get me through that postseason because my, I, I couldn't sleep at night. And I remember thinking, wow, I got to have two shoulder surgeries. And, and I, and I went and I talked to a bunch of different doctors and I came with the conclusion. I forget who it was, but he told me, Brett, if you get serious with this rehab and the tedious work that I'm going to have you do, and it's not going to be overnight, this is going to be eight months of getting up and doing this every day. Uh, he suggested against the surgery. Now, I don't want to be an expert because I'm not Fernando Tatis. I don't know exactly what's going on with his shoulder. I know it tends to pop out on him, but I know with that, and that was the beginning of my training and when I really got serious about the gym and diet and all that stuff. So I kind of even went overboard on that. I couldn't be happier with, with how those tedious exercise really worked for me. Uh, and I kept with them for the rest of my career. Never had another shoulder problem. But it's something you got to stay on top of. And and the thing I see with Tatis, he's such a dynamic player. He's Alex Rodriguez is what he is at the same age. He's that good. Um, And I would hate to see something disrupt that that great career that could be by something like this. I hope he's making the right decision. Another thing is he plays so hard. Uh, everything is, you know, you can say what you want about the talent and the power and, and the arm strength. And, but when he hits a, when he gets a base hit to right buster, he's not thinking single. When he hits one in the gap, he's thinking triple out of the box. That's what I love to see now as a fan, as I sit back, do all the, the stuff that the kids do today and the bat flipping and the kissing to the, st- to the sky and doing whatever they do. But when I see a kid hit one in the gap and he's going three, that gets me excited. He plays so hard. That's what I worry about with, with Tatis. And as he gets a little bit older and, and matures a little bit in this game, I, I, I came up with a young Ken Griffey Jr. And you talk about going hard, running into walls. He had to learn as he got a little bit older. I can't go quite as hard. He still went hard because I don't think you just go from an all-out guy to, oh, I'll control this and just go back to 65%. But, but maybe you pull it back to 92%. Uh, that's the only thing I worry about with Tatis. Unless I had more information on exactly what that injury is, I really don't know. Hopefully he's making the right decision, but I'm sure he's getting a lot of good advice from a lot of people that know what they're talking about. Yeah, I'm with you. I hope uh, I hope it works out for him because he is really exciting to watch. Um, you know, the best player that I ever saw for a short period of time, uh, Robbie Alomar, in the first half of, of 1996, he had 373 before the All-Star break. He's stealing bases. He's making plays all over the place. Um, And there just seemed to be such a, you know, I remember hearing a soccer coach once describe 
the elite soccer players having a great imagination. Uh, that's what I always thought of with, with, with Roberto and how he played second base. And when I watched Tatis Jr. play, that's the way it feels. Like he has an imagination for the way the game uh, is played at a completely different level than a lot of his peers he can even imagine. Yeah, he's got it all. He's got that that rock star look, too, to go with it. Um, top three moments in the game for you. Oh, boy. Um, well, 2001 World Series, I mentioned, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, seeing that team, you know, run to the end of that World Series. I was covering the Orioles when Cal broke Lou Gehrig's record. I was a beat writer for the Baltimore Sun at that time. That was amazing. Um, and he, um, you know, Cal and I never had a warm relationship. As I said, he, he was, he, he didn't really like to share, uh, by that point he was kind of, a, you know, he, he was doing a lot of commercials. And so an idiot like me was going to come in, potentially be a threat to, you know, to, uh, his image. Uh, but the way that he handled 1995 and that year and all the autographs that he signed and the, the grace that he had you know, coming off the strike, he was so important for baseball. You know, people have, have given McGuire and Sosa and the home run chase in 98 a lot of credit. I, I've always thought Cal deserves a lot of credit for, for that in 95. Uh, you mentioned signing autographs. I, I'd see him, you know, stay out at Camden Yards till 1 o'clock in the morning signing autographs after games, you know, going down and having something to eat and then coming back and signing autographs for hours uh, for people, for fans, and at the end of that year, I had an MVP vote. I put him 10th. And I think the other one was the most incredible game was game six of the 2011 World Series, the David Freeze game. Uh, you know, I was in the runway waiting to run out on the field to do the postgame interviews. And I didn't actually see the, you know, the, the pitch thrown. But I'll never forget seeing or hearing the crowd roar when the ball, as I found out later, went over Nelson Cruz's head. And then I just had an alley looking through and I see one runner come through and then another runner come through and you're like, oh, my God, they tied the game. Uh, And then to see Freeze hit a home run later, uh, that that was, in my mind, the the greatest game that was ever played. Buster Olney, the one and only. I I just want to say thanks for coming on the Boone podcast today. It was a lot of fun uh, and it was a pleasure for me. Absolutely. It's fun talking with you. All right, well, that's going to do it for this special podcast of the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the title director and producer of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boone Podcast. That gets taken care of all by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.